Welcome to The One Hour Intern. I'm your host, Will Brigger. So to start, let's just set some context about you right now. During this quarantine and COVID time, what have you been working on and doing to stay productive? Yeah, so it turns out that I moved into Silicon Valley when I was just 20, 21 years old. It was uh, 1999. And the reason for going out there was being recruited by one of the co-founders of PayPal. And it was a drastic change from life in the Midwest in all terms of ways, uh, both personal and obviously with work. And then had been sort of out there for all the way until 2019. So last year, so exactly for 20 years and throughout that period, it was going from, I think, seeing the entire spectrum of what Silicon Valley offers. Everything from starting as an employee at a startup with less than 10 people, working with some very remarkable co-founders of companies, CEOs of companies, including Elon and, and Peter Thiel, Max, and then going through, I mean, all of that dot-com crash acquisition going public. And this is just with PayPal for the first five, six years. And then starting, of course, the big part of that was in the middle spectrum where I was working with Chad Hurley, who had met at PayPal, the other co-founder of YouTube, and then starting in 2005, and then just building something from the ground up. And then obviously with our luck and timing and then some of the hard work and the, uh, the employees that we were able to get, we were able to, to sort of create the sort of YouTube that ultimately was acquired by Google and then continue to grow up to this point. And I stayed around for another five, six years and then at Google, that is. And then for the, the next eight, seven or eight years, it was continuing to kind of doing the other things that when you're co-founding a company, when you're still working under the umbrella of a company, it doesn't allow you to. So a lot of things with advising, a lot of things with being part of just seeing what other 20-year-olds were doing, starting new companies. But at the close of the sort of 20 years, and this is before everything with COVID-19 started, it was 2019. I thought that I had done just about, at least tried, experimented, and decided if I liked it or not. But I, I pretty much, I think, had an opportunity to try everything that Silicon Valley had on its table. And I think there was always the route of just continuing to, to kind of find the one path that I was most passionate about and continue down, tracking down that route. Or, and this is the route that I took, which was, and this is, I think it's in parallel with the reasons why I jump on a single non-round trip flight to go to Silicon Valley. It's the same rationale behind taking out your life savings and starting YouTube is that I want to do something else in my life. There's one time that you live. So let's take, let's pack up our bags. Let's take the family on a, another one-way flight to, to somewhere else outside of Silicon And so that happened in 2019, in August of 2019 specifically. And it was in tandem with the academic school schedules for the kids. And then obviously everything in sort of COVID-19 happened a little bit earlier in Asia before starting. So for the first few weeks that it was in here in Taiwan, where I am now, I was really regretting this move. And this is before March when there was uh, even, you know, I think in the time, February, there was less than a dozen people in the uh, U.S. and it was still unsure whether or not it was there at all. And at the time, people were already wearing masks out here. People were already getting sort of alcohol sprayed, disinfectants on their hands. They were already checking for everybody with COVID-19. And that period, for those few weeks, I was regretting this move. And then, again, things have been moving so quickly here. So starting from March, 
April, it kind of the tables turned a bit. And I think that in some ways, Taiwan has stood out as a, fortunately, as a country that has been, well, it's rather insulated. So it's able to keep pretty much all the checks at the gates of the airport. And as long as you pass that, as you pass the 14-day quarantine, then you're allowed in. So they've done a pretty good job enabling a somewhat relatively normal life to still be led, including the kids going to school full-time and then being able to continue to do work here full-time. And so since then, it's been continuing on this track of starting something here in Taiwan, but trying to do it in a very Silicon Valley-ish style. And so that's where I am right now. It's for three, four months into it now. It was uh, First, it was sort of getting adjusted and exploring what just somewhere a country on the other side of the Pacific offered. But I think starting from about three, four months ago, it was really deciding that I think there's still this passion, even though I'm on another in another country, the passion to be able to look for, I guess, problems that I think technology could come into play and technology could excite to make better, to provide a solution that wasn't there in the traditional sense before technology came around. And so to, to be able to do that in Taiwan is in some ways pursuing a passion that I've always had. But in another way, it's a new way of doing it that wouldn't have been, you know, you're just facing new challenges and then some things are easier, some things are harder. But it's the same thing about just starting to look at problems, providing a solution, and then doing it with sort of every step along the way, being a startup again. And what's the particular problem that you're focusing on with your new startup? Interesting, because I think it's very relevant to the, the specific last few months and last few years and where I was solely based in the U.S. and California in the Bay Area and then coming out to to Asia. One seeing the sort of the differences and then I think with COVID-19 specifically, it's that I think that every country has taken a very different approach to how they wanted to adopt the solutions to solving COVID-19. And you can see just over the course of the last four or five months, how those solutions have continued to develop and what the results of those early, early decisions made back in March, April, have actually how that's resulted August, September timeframe. So I think that the idea is to be able to try to be able to still kind of connect the world together in some way. But knowing that sort of a lot of things are moving more into the virtual sense rather than actually meeting face-to-face. Yet there's an idea where there are different countries out there that are in different sort of life cycles, different ages of how they've dealt with COVID. So obviously something like uh, Italy and Spain where they've had sort of the worst conditions a few months ago. Now sort of new cases are I think a dozen, two dozens a day. And then you have countries like Vietnam, New Zealand and Taiwan that's done a fairly good job in protecting itself. But then I think you have other countries that have had, and I think the U.S., it's very quickly learning, but I think some of the early days where it wasn't exactly sure, and just the massive scale of trying to control something in the U.S. is just much harder than anything that you can do in a, in a more isolated place like Taiwan. But I think that where I saw coming back to where I think technology can be a solution is that in one sense, I think companies that I've invested in, that I've worked at before in Silicon Valley, they're still, still able to do work because everything in the last few years has gone virtual that you can you can have meetings like this where we're separated by a few thousand miles and it doesn't make that big of a difference. In fact, from talking with some people, it actually makes things a little bit more efficient. 
to be able to have more meetings to be able to get more done. So from the office work sense, I think that technology has already, not that provided a solution, a solution already existed, a technology solution that already existed before COVID-19. And you have things like Uber Eats or you have grocery services, Instacart. You have these services out there that are already actually providing some of the other solutions that you would have had to try to kind of scratch your head if this happened 10 years ago. But I think as we continue on as schools start and it's all done virtually, as colleges are restarting their new year, it's all being conducted virtually. I think that there's going to be cases where sort of intrinsic human need to just be able to meet and, and, and socialize and to meet new people. That's a miss right now. And I think that it depends. I mean, one is we don't know how long COVID's going to last. And then two is that I do think that things will permanently change even when things return back to normal. As in, I think the, the definition of normal is going to be changing after this period. And so I think that technology can come into play to be able to see whatever that new normal is. Is there a way that technology can try to create a bridge between the happiness, whatever brought us the joys that had before COVID-19? If it's not if it's not possible to completely replicate now, is there a way that technology can approximately replicate it? Things like even being an investor in like the Sacramento Kings, just seeing what's happening with the NBA, not sure what's going to be happening with the NFL. Things are being delayed. Baseball, the upcoming U.S. Open, Wimbledon was capital up to the U.S. Open, having to be completely isolated with just without your family playing. Like, I think that it can only go so long in this manner. And I think it's going to be a matter of just innovation, technology that's going to be able to make it a little bit easier to still enjoy these things that we enjoyed before. Yeah. So before you were thinking about all these problems in the world and how technology can be the solution, you were a 17 year old kid. It was 1995. What was life like for you? Well, I think that then was still in Chicago at the time, right? And so I think all the way until about 14, 15 years ago, up until 14, 15 years old, it was more or less a Chicago Midwest suburbs typical lifestyle. And then the the same things, wake up, breakfast, school bus, cereal, elementary school, junior high. But when I got into high school, that's when things I think change from what that sort of normal trajectory would have been. So starting from 15 years old, it was going into a sort of a boarding school math. It was the Illinois Math and Science Academy. So at the ages of 14, 15, a sophomore in high school, living away from living away from parents, living in a dormitory full of just other, I think you needed to take a test to be able to get in. And it was solely focused on really the, the, in the math and science sectors. And it was back then, and this is before even college back then, it was like 92, 93. I think just luck and timing just to have the exposure to sort of the internet back in 92, 93, much earlier than any high schooler would have been able to get access to this. And then I think just being 24-7, being surrounded by other kind of uh, kids that are all over from the state of Illinois that are passionate about the same things and being able to engage with them, being able to talk with them. The formal school setting, as well as outside the formal school setting, you're able to continue to sort of develop and to be able to pinpoint whatever you like. And so... Those are the first few years that I really started getting into 
I think that was the sort of the foundation that was set to be able to understand at an earlier age than others to be able to understand infrastructure data, that technology behind it, and to be able to see what are the things that potentially technology could come in and fix and address that was not available for them before. And then continued, so for those three years, all the way into the ages of seven, the ages of going into 17, 18, going to the sort of math, from the Math and Science Academy to the University of Illinois, Champaign Urbana. And this was just right before, say, Mark Andreessen left to come to Silicon Valley. And this was just being in another atmosphere where I think out of all the schools in the Midwest, Champaign Urbana was the one school that was relatively isolated. It was three or four hours away from any, it was three hours from Chicago, but it always had sort of one eye fixed on if you wanted to do something, if you wanted to be an entrepreneur, if you had an idea, here's a route to Silicon Valley. And that path, that journey, that trip has been taken by plenty of others before I took that trip myself three years after increase. And during that period, just as more and more people continued to, from Illinois to Silicon Valley, these entrepreneur technology entrepreneurs, they needed to continue to hire aggressively. And because of their connections um, through ACM and other connections back into the Champaign-Urbana environment, it was very easy for them to just continue to hire. So there was always a solid path from if you wanted to explore Silicon Valley, here's here's the ticket to come out here. And so that was it. I mean, I think that it was a quick conversation with Max Lefter, the co-founder, that was also from Champagne event at the time. It was an um, interview. At the time, there was no video chat interview. There was no audio. It was just a, uh, a text message interview, and it was about 30 minutes. And then pretty much buying the ticket as soon as that text interview was over. My question about that is, before you made the decision to go to Champagne or Monty, you were at this math and sciences high school, why did you decide to go there? Why did you decide that that was the path that you wanted to take? So for the high school aspect of it, it was really to be able to, I think back then, and I don't know what it is currently in high school, but I think as you start going into high school, as you start going to those 14, 15, 16, 17 ages, I think that's when you start developing, really seeing the all the different things that could be of interest. That's when you start actually growing I think that the seeds of passion start growing about, okay, so I think this is the area that's going to interest me. I think that comes earlier than, say, when you have to choose your major in college. I think you start actually already deciding back then, this is what I'm interested in. When I have free time, this is what I'm going to be doing. This is what I'm going to be exploring. And then you naturally start meeting and I think connecting with other folks that like the same things, whether it's in your high school or your neighborhood. And I think back then with technology being so, so new. When I started deciding that this is something that's interesting to me, there was literally, I don't know what it is like in high school now, but there were no computers or computer science or any of these classes that were available in the traditional public schools. And so the opportunity to be able to go into, it was an experimental, but it was here, anybody that's interested in science and anybody that's interested in math in the entire state of Illinois, if you apply for this school, if you get into this school, you'll be in an environment, you'll be living, and there's room and board, living with other people that are interested in the same things, which is math and science. And so I 
I left at that opportunity to be able to be surrounded by other people that are from around the state that had the same passions that I did. And were there any particular people or moments that helped you realize that you should leave at that opportunity that technology was your future? Any one time that stands out to you, the one interaction? Well, I mean, I think that there were repeats, but plenty. I think I would say that when it comes to something, especially like engineering, computer science, and programming, is that you you get to, I think the one of the beauties of it is that when you start building something, you wake up and you start building something and six, seven, eight hours later, you see the fruits of that hard work because engineering, when you're building something, it's different from architecture. It's different from mechanical engineering. It's different from if you're going to be thinking about constructing a bridge where you don't really know what's going to happen until years and years later. When it comes to building engineering, and this goes from way back when I was 14 years old, all the way to the YouTube days, to Google, that if you have an idea, if you just have an inkling of a a new feature that you want to build, you can think about it the night before and the day after you can build it and the night after you can release it to the public, right? And so I think there were little elements of that that I found even at the ages where I was in high school, where I had an idea of building a waving flag, the U.S. flag with like the star-spangled banner playing in the background and you can tap on different parts. This is before the mouse, but you can tap on different parts of the screen with your keyboard and it would make little beeping sounds back then. And back then, to be able to write that with the computers back then, it was difficult to do. But it was something where you just, when you wake up, on a Sunday morning and you think, well, what do I want to do? I basically have a keyboard, I have a computer, it's blank, and whatever I do today, whatever I write down, whatever keystrokes that I type, at the end of the day, it's going to translate whatever idea you had in your head into something that you can show on. And so while I, I saw that early on, I think that that's part of what I was describing is that that's part of the seed to be able to say, this is something that's different from just about everything out there. And then especially when you start thinking about uh, when the internet really came about and that it's not just you seeing it or you and your parents seeing it, but you can literally have an idea in the morning, build it out, and then a million people see it by the time that you go to sleep. So I think that that's one element that's I think, very, very different when it comes to building startups completely in the software space like, like what I've done in the last 20 years. Yeah. When you were at that school, were there any mentors or people who really helped influence you later on in your decision-making or even your hard skills that you think of now? That's a good question. I think that my answer is going to be ironic, which is I think it's actually the lack of people that helped and that in a way there was a group that was, they were interested in the same things. And so when it comes to sharing knowledge, for example, it's, it's being able to ask and being able to talk about what did I learn yesterday? What did I discover yesterday? But when it comes to actually still building and developing something, I think it becomes really the internet was something that just wasn't there before. So being able to, to be able to get exposed to the internet at the ages, three, four years before it really enveloped everyone else, to be able to have an access to this and being able to talk to anyone else around the world about the same things that you're working on, that was something that I think I had the fortune to be able to have that others didn't have back then. And so it wasn't specifically any 
teacher or anyone that I was talking to on a regular basis. It was being able to kind of the lack of that and being able to use a computer to be able to do anything I wanted that I think really helped me later on to be able to say, well, well, if I do have something that I want to be able to do, if there's a way to do it, I can do it with access to my own machine, access to a computer and access to the internet, access to other people that can help. For today's world, is there anything that you see as similar to the rise of the internet that people should be thinking about in the same way that you were thinking about the internet? I think there's just to be able to create a nice slide deck. I think that we try to transform what is really happening in the world into something that can be shaped into triangles and circles and rectangles, right? And arrows. But I think that in reality, it's been a smooth transition over the last 20 years. So so definitely, I think that there's going to be a few stamps along the way. If you look at, again, Netscape as one of the first browsers that's graphical that you can actually use to be able to surf the internet. I think when you start looking at the first ages of sort of Yahoo and eBay at the time, and then as you start going on, you do have sort of the Google and then I think YouTube being able to provide videos on the internet. And as you continue to go on, I think that there's different solutions that came along through that time. But I think that still underlying all that is just trying to recreate what had been done for decades and decades before, how can it be done better, more efficiently on the internet than before? And one thing that I've always said is that the one thing that the internet doesn't change is that there's still 24 hours in a given day. It's just about how much we can actually do and how much we can accomplish in 24 hours. And that's all over. I mean, it could come down to, in the case of YouTube, I think is, look, if I have, if I'm spending seven hours sleeping, if I'm spending 30 minutes commuting to to work, to school, all that, it's still the same. But maybe there's more efficient ways to be able to do it. Things like Uber really help that in some ways. But I think that when it comes to just when you're getting out of school, when you're getting out of work, and if you have an hour, an hour and a half of time to be able to entertain yourself, well, I think YouTube has provided a way to be able to find exactly what you want to watch and be able to watch it the time that you want to watch it and for as many times. And so I think it was a clear solution to something that people wanted, needed. And I think that we're continuing to see technology being able to more efficiently compress what we can do within those 24 hours. I think that in general, it's moving out of the very clear case of here, is there a better way to be able to do food delivery? Is there a better way to be able to just get entertainment? or a better way to be able to listen to music. But I think we're starting to be able to see it in a larger space where it starts doing multinational transportation, where is there a way that technology can make this easier? Is there a way that technology can really transform things that have been so big, so large, that just a simple startup, a couple 28-year-olds, would have been much more difficult to do with a lot less capital. It's just difficult to do that now than it is a few years ago. So what do you tell kids who are trying to do it now? How do you motivate them or what do you tell them to make sure that they put their life on the line to create a product that will help the world like you did? I think that's great to be able to think about that in the grand goal of what you want to do. But I do think that, for example, what I tell my kids is that I'm not telling them every day, what did you do today to be able to take a step in changing 
the world. I think that it is a pretty evolutionary process. And so I think a lot of it needs to be driven by what you're personally interested in, what you're personally passionate about. I think it's very trying. It's very difficult to say, I want to change the world. But every step along the way, it's struggling with something you don't enjoy doing. So it's not for everyone because there's a lot of risk involved and you have to be ready to adopt failures that are inevitably going to come at every step along the way. But if someone does have these characteristics of wanting to be able to take some of these risks, they're able to put their lives on the line to be able to take all these problems in stride and continue to have the courage to move forward. My advice is you really still should be working under the umbrella of a larger organization to be able to have a few advisors, to be able to have a few role models to follow first before you, at the ages of 17, 18, go and take that first step of doing something on your own. I think ideas are still easier to come by than the execution. And so they're looking again at Google. Google wasn't the first search engine out there but it turned out to be the best one that people have adopted. There have been plenty of cases before YouTube in 2005 where people thought it's not a brilliant idea to be able to think, is there a way to be able to use a computer to be able to watch videos? I mean, it was already pretty obvious here. We have text, we have photos, images, we have audio streaming. The next one would have been videos. And plenty of people have attempted to do that before 2005. I think it's the execution that that mattered to be able to. A lot of it is timing and that's with luck. But I think a lot of it is actually the, the experience, the actual team and how it actually makes the decisions about prioritizing what it's going to do and how that actual execution of the solution is conducted that makes the success of kind of combining together, here's the solution and here's the execution. And so I do think that it's important for people with this sort of innovative spirit to be able to first spend a few years just being able to work in a larger company, to be able to see completely the when an idea comes, how it actually goes through everything from the planning stages to maybe the mock-up stages to the execution from the engineers. There's QA involved. After it goes out, how do you troubleshoot? How do you debug? There's going to be incoming customer service requests. You're going to have to answer that. It's much bigger than just an actual, here's an idea. And I think part of that is that you're only going to really be able to see that if you've worked in a larger company. And then if you've feel comfortable in doing it yourself, you probably take down some notes along the way and be able to say, if I were to do this again, these are the things that I would do differently. These are the things that I would do completely the same. These are the things that I would alter a little bit. And after three, four years of that, then I recommend, yeah, take that chance, take that leap. And in some ways, I almost say that even if you have an inkling of desire to do it, you should just try it once. Failure comes, you're going to know if your idea is not going to work. It's not going to take a few years. It's going to take six months, nine months to be able to do. And even if it comes out in a failure, of course, if it's a success, then it's a win-win. But even if it comes out as a failure, I think that it's such a great life experience. So not to think about it as a failure in terms of just from monetary terms, but think about it still as a success. And I've tried to do this. And this was the things that I've learned along the way. And surely you will learn some things along the way. So I do want to go back to that idea of failure in a bit, but I'll ask you, jump back in time again to when you were a kid. Throughout your whole childhood experience, were there any particular 
stories or moments where you learn any values or any other lessons that were really important later in your life, making your companies, dealing with failures and just growing and even being a parent? Yeah, I think one of the key aspects that I've adopted fairly early on and I've seen the success of it is that usually when a problem comes along and that first thought that enters your head five seconds, 10 seconds after what the solution of this is, I think my gut instinct tells me what I would do. I think that is typically the best solution that you're going to be most solidly backing behind rather than kind of thinking it through for hours to days to weeks about it. And I've taken that route for everything that I've done from making the decision to move out to Silicon Valley and abandoning everything I had. And that was done in under 30 minutes of time. So this is what I want to do. To even creating something like YouTube is that if you have an idea about it, let's try it and try it early on. Don't think about it too much. And I think that every step along the way from dropping out of school and coming out to Silicon Valley, to getting married, to buying a home for the first time, to be able to sell the company, to be able to jump into doing everything that I've done. I think that my recommendation to folks is that don't think too much about it. Don't do too much calculation about it. I think just have trust in your gut instincts. And I think that's something that it seems like it's high risk, but for me, I've learned that those gut instincts typically end up being the right ones. And even after you take a couple of weeks to be able to evaluate the probabilities of success of that, it's going to come back to that. I think the only thing that really hinders you, that blocks you, is the tolerance of risk, whether or not you want to take it. It's not that you've made the wrong decision when the, in those first 30 seconds. And obviously you've proven that that mindset works, but it's hard for a lot of people to just trust their gut. How did you learn to just do it? And what would you tell those people who are having a difficult time trusting themselves? I think that it's not exactly what your teachers or what your parents want you to do. But I think that once you start trying it on your own, I think most people just don't take these bigger decisions to say, I'm not even going to pack my bags. The first thing I'm going to do after this interview is look for flights, look for plane tickets, one-way plane tickets. And then tomorrow, the next day, after I purchase my plane ticket, I'm going to go into the University of Illinois and the actual building and say, look, I'm going to suspend finishing my senior year here. I'm going to head out to Silicon Valley. I think after doing that, it's just something that, if I had called my parents beforehand to say, what do you think about this decision? My belief is that it would have been very much the opposite of what I decided to do. But so I think it really just takes a few times of trying. And I think that it comes back to what I was saying earlier is that I think you should try it first and then make these decisions about sort of your life yourself, whether or not it works or not. And I think that many people would be surprised that actually this turns out to be a pretty successful way of being able to make decisions and they turn out to be the correct ones. And so I think that it just takes that first leap of faith to be able to say this is possible. Yeah. On that note, let's go to the coffee break. Opportunity for you to take a break of talking about your life story and giving advice and just say a funny story. What's one of the funniest moments in your life when you turn red and laugh at yourself? I think one of the 
the things was just as soon as, and this is probably going anti what I just recommended about making decisions quickly because sometimes they don't go smoothly. I think as soon as we sold YouTube, it was in about a few months, ended up buying something like four homes, ended up getting married, ended up expecting a child and ended up not sure. I mean, just all of this happened after about a month after YouTube. And I think this is also a result of the same Steve that started YouTube is making decisions quickly. In some ways, if you do, I guess, make those decisions too quickly, you're going to end up in the same situation where the, the bachelor's pad that you had a month ago is going to become the diaper changing table for your six-month-year-old kid in a few months. So I think that in some ways it was leading up to success, but right after YouTube, I, I think that maybe there is some commentary, some advice to be able to take some of those bigger life decisions, take it in hand and, and then think a little bit more before jumping in more. Find the balance between when to take the leap of faith and when to think a little bit. Yeah. So if I do have the time to be able to sit down with my kids, maybe I'm going to say the same thing as what my parents said to me is uh, do think a little bit before jumping. So back to your story, you've dropped out of college to go to Silicon Valley and work for PayPal originally. What was it like being at PayPal around only 10 people trying to work on a startup? I think that the great part about PayPal was that compressed into a few years, I was able to see the whole thing and it turned out to be successful at the end. So I was able to see when, even when, when Peter Thiel and Max, they were early, they were young, they were also looking at PayPal as a great learning experience for them. And so it was a great group of amazing potential individuals, but at the same time, they were also gaining that potential during that time that they were at PayPal. So I think that it was a little bit of a it wasn't a clear path. It was a little bit of stumbling along the way. But I think that that's part of the elements of PayPal is that we made a lot of poor decisions, but ultimately being able to, in a timely manner, recognize when you made a poor decision and still be able to correct it into the, okay, well, we made a mistake versus being able to decide early on that I think this is the path that we should be going on. I think that those were the early learnings that I had as to how do you come from a two-person co-founded startup to... 10 people to continue to grow even through this dot-com crash and continue to survive that as one of the few companies that survived that crash and continues to, to grow. And, and I was just saying, if I hadn't gone through that experience myself, even had I come up with the idea of, okay, I think that this is the right time to create YouTube in 2005, I don't think I would have been able to successfully do it had I not gone through that phase myself back in 1999. And after going through that phase, how did you make the decision that it's time to make YouTube? How did you know it was the right time just for other entrepreneurs who are trying to think, when's the right time to make my product? I think that it comes down to a lot of life development. I think it's, again, personal philosophy here. But for me, it was always looking at it from a day-to-day, week-to-week basis or project-to-project basis. And I think a part of that is looking at what are the things that I'm going to be able to, why am I spending all this dedicated time, energy, my life into doing this one thing? 
And still, even until now, but certainly back then when I was in early 20s, those 80-hour, 100-hour work weeks were more common than rare. And I think that during that period, it's wanting to make sure that I'm fine with spending those hours, that energy, my personal time into doing something, but I need to know this is something that I'm really passionate about. This is something that I really love doing. And in that way, it doesn't become work anymore. It becomes what I want to do, right? And I think that throughout those years, I continue to kind of grow both in age experience, but I think most importantly is the knowledge and experience to be able to go through and come from college senior dropout to being able to know what a company's like to start from kind of taking a, an idea and translating into what do people do to bring this idea to fruition all throughout that. And as it continued to grow, I just did a lot more different things, starting from being an engineer myself to being able to lead an engineer, to being able to lead multiple teams of leaders that were leading engineers, launching big projects from, from sort of, again, myself from this idea phase, to being able to build a team, doing that all within the scope of PayPal. But at the end of 2005, there was a really large project that I finished after about six months of leading a large team over 20 people. And it was launching PayPal in China at the time. And there was just a bundle of problems that came along every week along the way. And actually getting through all that and being able to celebrate the success of that, the end of June 2005, May of 2005, I started thinking, is there anything else that I really want to take away from PayPal or eBay at the time? And really, at that time, I thought that there's definitely a lot more interesting projects, exciting projects that I could be doing here, but they would be a little bit repetitive of what I've already done in the last four or five years at PayPal. And so the next step for me was, I'm still passionate about what I want to do, but I want to be able to do it in something that could give me the sort of, I think that feedback that I'm looking for whenever I'm passionate about something is that this is what you're doing. This is what you're committing your time into. And I want to make sure I get something out of it. And so that was the big decision back then, which is, well, I've never done a startup before. I've never done this where I was one of the co-founders of the company. Let's give that a shot. So you mentioned repetition in that answer. Being a PayPal would be, of each task would be repetitive of the last a little bit. How did that idea of breaking from the repetitiveness affect your life? I think there is some repetition to be able to accrue the skills that you need to be able to do something else, right? But I think your your sort of mental mind psyche is going to tell you at some point that this repetition is repeating something that I've already learned how to do myself and I'm already quite skilled at. And I think that being able to know when that happens, I think is important. Being able to continue to go from, okay, well then what is the next natural step to take to be able to do something that it's going to take, I think, a little bit of courage to be able to take that first step and to do something that you've never done. But if it's the right step to take, and if you can continue down that track to say, I love doing this, I'm going to keep doing it until there's something else that, that opens up. I think that's the big thing that came when repeating a few things, but then after launching a very large project within PayPal, I started thinking, is there going to be anything quite as big Yes, but is there anything that's going to be bigger? No, I think what's going to be bigger is trying to do this on my own at YouTube. And even past YouTube, it wasn't... After YouTube, for example, the large project that I started was with Chad Hurley, the other co-founder of YouTube. And we created an incubator called Avos, A-V-O-S. It wasn't as successful 
as YouTube, obviously. But I still thought that in many ways, it just provided as much of the learning experiences that I had at PayPal, at YouTube, at Google, doing those three, four years running an incubator. It's just another thing of, why did I leave YouTube? I think that as a sort of co-founder or a CTO, as an operational guy at YouTube, I've done everything that I, I really wanted to do within that scope, within that atmosphere. Let's try doing something else. And it's a good life lesson to say that taking these steps, it's just as much about just personal satisfaction and personal accomplishments. And it's not necessarily just measured as much as are you on the cover of Wall Street Journal for the steps that you've taken. Yeah. Looking at your experience at YouTube as a, in a big picture way, what were the biggest failures that you had on that project and how did you overcome them? I think that there was a very short period with YouTube. And I think that it really in about September, October of 2005 was when it started really scaling up. And it really was September of 2006 when we sold it to Google. In those 12 months, I think that if anything, maybe we could have taken a, a little bit slower. I think that the goal was always focused on just the core metrics of how fast you grow this service, how quickly you grow the app, the site. So it was always measured by the number of views, the number of say, videos uploaded, the number of users that were being created every day. But I think that one part of it was that, say that we were almost too quick to succeed on that front alone that we didn't think about what are the larger ramifications of if we were to hit these numbers so quickly. We didn't really think about, well, what's going to happen with overworking the same group of 40, 50 people? What's going to happen when you start getting some of the legal repercussions of you know, maybe copyrighted content, maybe overviolent content that's being uploaded to YouTube? And so in some ways, it's hard to rewind the clock and say what we did correct and what we did incorrect, because maybe it wouldn't have turned out the way it did if we made these decisions differently. But I know that by the end of 2006, we had grown things too quickly that we just couldn't survive on our own anymore, which is ironic in some ways that you were successful in the definition of what you defined as success early, early on. But what ended up happening is that we didn't think about if we were too successful here, we have to sell the company in 12 months. Now, zooming out and looking at your whole life, have there been any particular big failure moments that you've now appreciate because they really helped you move to the next step or you think about them today and they help you? I do think that to be able to really look at everything you actually do and look at it as it's that proper definition of success being the correct one. And I think that so much of social pressure is defined to be, this is the way that you're supposed to define success. And it's a absolute, it's not relative to you. It has no relation to what you actually think is successful. It's going to be the time to market. It's going to be your GPA. It's going to be, these are the things that we're going to define. But I think that as you start having more experience, as you start trying more things, and you're going to start thinking about this is what I, Steve, define as something that's successful for me. And in that regard, when I look at it from when people ask, well, now that you've sold YouTube, not and you've created YouTube, what are you going to do afterwards? It starts getting depressing if I continue to think about those absolute terms of success being creating something and looking at the market 
market cap of this company, the the time to success. But I think that along the way, you end up deciding, no, that the actual success is, for me, for example, as a, I think more sort of an entrepreneurial guy is still thinking about, here's a problem that I face every day. And can I use technology? Can I use my background and experience to be able to create a solution to be able to fix that? And along the way, there's definitely cases where it's an app that I push out that gets some users that other users that are facing these same problems, they're able to find the solutions of, but it's not going to be as big as YouTube when it's defined, but success is defined by other people. So I think that in terms of a life lesson still is that I would say even entrepreneurship is not for everyone. If that's not what you're going to be enjoying, then don't pursue that. I think it's important to be able to set straight what it is that you define your success personally to be. Yeah, that very well answers my next question, but I'll ask it unless you want to add something thinking of the question. How do you personally define success after your whole life experience? Well, I mean, I think many times the journey is a lot more enjoyable than reaching that goal. I think it's important to set that goal, but you got to have fun with it every step along the way. Or else, I mean, it's really fighting for that one moment where you, if you were to meet that successful goal, you have to have fun along the way, or else it's going to be those few weeks where you meet that success. And then afterwards, and all the time before, and all that energy that you spent to be able to reach that point, if you're not having fun doing it, then to me, it's not worth doing because coming back to that definition of success, it's not success defined by somebody else. It's defined success by what you enjoy doing. And if you're not enjoying doing all the things that lead up to that moment, then I wouldn't call that a success. Yeah, of course. So before we close, I'll go to my last segment, which is called the PowerPoints. And if you think through your whole life and through our whole conversation, three bullet points, three things that someone should remember from this conversation, what would that be? Let's see. The few things I think one is to be true to yourself. I think it's important to be able to enjoy, to be able to pursue something that you yourself has defined to be something. So of course, I think that that evolves based on the environment that you're in, the community that you're in. But I think you have to stay true to be able to say, this is what I want to be doing. This is how I define success. And then the second one is, I think that you need to be pretty clear about what definition of what that success is. I think that it's too easy to be swayed by the constant pressures of sort of the changing social requirements demands to be able to completely change what you want to uh, what you want to be doing. I think that it's important for you to be staying true to yourself in terms of what you define that success to be. And coming back to the other point, you know, it's I think parents would be angry if I were to broadcast this to other kids, but it is to be able to trust yourself, to be able to, if it ends up being you get this inkling of an idea, pursue it. I think what's worst is to be able to five, 10 years later to look back and say, oh, I regret I didn't do this five, 10 years ago. It's not going to take a long time to be able to really passionately pursue something and being able to see whether or not that idea that in your head was good or bad. It's a lot better to try it either way than to have to say five, 10 years later, seeing something like that result as a success and then you yourself not being behind it and being regretful that you didn't take that chance. Yeah. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you for listening to One Hour Intern. I hope that you explore more of our episodes. Follow us at One Hour Intern. The one is spelled using the number one. And if you enjoyed, please rate, follow, and subscribe. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time, thanks. Thanks.